are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan here with... Sky. And we are getting into the book of Revelations. We are. Also better known as Revelation. Yeah. Uh, you notice that tendency? It's, yeah, uh, I don't know if it's, it's a, a pet, Bible Belt thing or what it is. No, it's a pet peeve for sure. Revelations. Same time, I don't want to be, you know, that guy. But yeah. it's yeah. singular. Yep, yep. It's what it is. Yep, yep. This is a fun one. You know, I've been working really hard studying for this one, you know, feel like my whole life just reading that, that Left Behind series oh, no. <laughs> and uh, trying to get my, my uh, exegesis right. So very thankful for the guys who wrote that book and just really made it all come alive for me, you know. <laughs> sarcasm. Did alert. you ever? Yeah. Oh yes. Please read the sarcasm. Sarcasm alert. Did you ever uh, um, watch the movies, the Left Behind movies? You know, I think I may. So there's more than one. Oh, there's lots. Yeah. Oh. There's like so the the original ones they did with uh, with Kurt. Cameron. Yeah. And well, I think there was actually some even before him, but the the first ones that were really big were the ones with him. And uh let me see. I'm going to look it up. I'm just curious. I think I did see maybe the first. Yeah, so the where first one you go a lot in of the clothes did. or you know, flat on the chair or whatever where the uh, person used to be. So they were going to make you know, there I, I forget how many books there are in the series, but there's like ten yeah. books. If if you have no idea what we're talking about, which I was that popular out here in uh, a little bit LDS culture. Okay. Yeah, I mean there there's an equivalent with books like Visions of Glory and uh-huh. I mean there's there's no end to premillennial expectation speculation. Yeah. In yeah. LDS culture. They just kind of Mormonify it. Yeah. You know. Well, so, man, what? What? There's what? one that just came out? <laughs> 2023? This is not an advertisement. Shut the front door. Wow. Um, okay, so the original series, they ended up only having three movies. The first one was in 2000. That was just called Left Behind the Movie. And then Left Behind 2 was Tribulation Force. That was 2002. And then Left Behind 3 was World at War. And that was 2005. And then they had, so this is one I was wondering if you'd ever heard of, but the one with Nicolas Cage in it. No. Did you see that one? <laughs> yeah, so Nicolas Cage was in a 2014 version of it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I, what's, I, what's that uh, movie where he's finding, like, the Declaration of Independence? And, well, we just watched that one. What is it night. called? Uh, National Treasure. Okay. Yeah. So it's like the biblical version. Yeah, something so like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the picture has him on the cover apocalyptic with a treasure bunch of flames behind him yeah <laughs> but yeah no there's one that wow. came out just just uh this past year called left behind rise of the antichrist so okay. there you go oh my goodness um it's the same guy who's in that movie god is not dead i see that actor on there yeah i don't i don't know that movie either yeah anyway <sighs> well well yeah it's pretty depressing <laughs> man uh, yeah it seems like they just can't get through all the books <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway. i mean that that book uh i think it was um 
I can't, well, Kim Riddlebarger, um, whom I'm very fan of, his his work on eschatology uh-huh. is pretty much my view. Um, but <clears throat> there's also a book called, what is it, Fundamentalism, sorry, I get my brain working here, Fundamentalism in American Culture by George Marston. And I had no idea that um, the Left Behind series, the, the, there was, or the late great planet Earth, uh-huh. that kind of book was like the best selling book for a decade in the United States. Yeah, it was. I mean, Hal Lindsey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just oh man, yeah. Man, you you didn't you didn't so grow up in it. If well, you if you grew up in it, you'd know. Well, yeah. Well, was, I grew up in the LDS version of it. You yeah. know, thinking, oh, I gotta stock my gold out in the mountains, you know, and I'm gonna save the Constitution and whatever nonsense. Yeah. Um. The Boys from the Mountains, that's one of these uh, LDS myths that, oh, you know, we're going to take our guns and food storage into the mountains and survive. And then while there's World War Three, then we're going to come out of the mountains and save the Constitution as the LDS priesthood holders, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's it's crazy. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, the, did, did they they would, I would movies? literally go to these meetings and hear uh, people recount this dream pattern they'd have about yeah. leaving into the mountains. Did they make any movies about it? Or anything like that? Um, is, there any, no. is there like an LDS version of the Left Behind movies? No. Man. Uh, th- th- not that I know of. See? I mean, there could be. That's a, there still, could be. Still trying to catch up when it comes yeah. to going mainstream. Yeah. I bet Tim Ballard wanted to make one. Oh, yeah. If I were There's to no speculate. <laughs> if I were to speculate. <laughs> oh, mercy. <laughs> Uh, wow. just uh, just give it a few years angel, yeah, angel, get, angel studios get, will be uh yeah. <laughs> chopping those out yep to ballard will be the the guy what would it be called you know um it couldn't be left behind no because they don't have like a rapture sort of a situation going on no although it is weird that there is a reading of an early stratum of the dnc that it may have had a form of mm. the rapture. Um, that was pointed out uh, in, in a book I read How early? recently. Because, I mean, the rapture, conceptually, I don't think came about until the mid-20th century. Interesting. In evangelicalism. Well, maybe LDS were ahead of the game. I'll look more closely yeah. at that. But there is this caught-in-the-air language that huh. people interpreted literally. Yeah. Um, but, the, I mean, eschatology in LDSism is pretty bizarre in how it develops, right? Um because it it has a very kind of mix of post and pre mill, right? We're gonna how, you think a restorationist movement it has to be a successful story, yeah. But at the same time, they're thinking Jesus is coming back next week. Ever since eighteen, you know, eighteen forties, so it's um, you know, it's it it's a weird mix of things and revelation has been consistently appropriated for this kind of thing where they will take even some of the times and try to assign, they do this symbol shopping thing. Right. So there was a book that a lot of my friends were into that was like, Oh, the beast is Karl Marx and the, the image of the beast is the Fabian socialists Mm -hmm. and, you know, make it all about the UN. And then you just see, wow, it's, this guy, oh, then it's Kissinger, and then it's, oh, and then it's this person. It's and always it's, someone else. Then it's Obama, and yeah. then it's the UN, and the EU, yeah. and those are the horns, and the me, 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 me. And it's yep. like, yep. It, it'll never go away. Yep. You just think eventually people will get tired of this. Yep, yep. But they, they're insatiable. Uh, yeah, and it's um, everywhere. It's amazing how many new religious movements do 
kind of have as their central marker, this apocalyptic end times, you know, driving force behind it. You know, I, I, I even was, uh, tragically was, uh, listening to, um, a description of the life of Horatio Spafford, which I, I can't remember if we've even mentioned him on the podcast before, but he's the man who wrote the hymn, It Is Well, It mm-hmm. Is Well, It Is Well With My Soul. And I'd never heard the history of his life after him writing the hymn. And the the short version is he wrote the hymn while he was on a ship crossing over the Atlantic Ocean and was looking out over the exact spot where just months earlier his uh, his whole whole family, aside from his wife, I believe it was his wife who survived, and all their children died on uh, mm. just a tragic boat. Uh, a boat struck the boat that they were on, and and it it went down. And so this came, you know, right after they had just lost all of their um, assets in the Chicago fire. And then, you know, they were, he was a well-to-do lawyer and, uh, pretty wealthy and, and just lost everything, then lost his family. Then, uh, as the story went, they, after grieving in Europe for a number of months, came back and started a new life and had more, more kids, all, all this stuff. I can't remember if it's his wife who died or maybe it was his oldest, maybe his oldest daughter survived and he got remarried. I can't remember, but in any case, um, he was part of a church that apparently was pretty harsh towards him and saying, you know, all these terrible things are happening to you because of the judgment of God. <sighs> and anyway, he ended up leaving that church. He went to Jerusalem and uh, moved there permanently and began a new religious movement where uh, he made these claims that Jesus was returning in seven years and they were the true, you know, chosen people of God and yeah. everyone else was apostate. And uh, he started his own little re- religious movement yep. there in Jerusalem wow. and uh, really did apostatize from the truth. And sad. sad yeah. to, you know, you, you got these great hymns of the faith. And ironically, you know, he, um, we, we sing all, f- I think it's four verses in it as well. But the last verse he didn't add until after he had developed this new religious group. And that's the one that, uh, w- goes something like the clouds, uh, the, the trump, sh- sh- oh Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even still it is well with my soul. And that was added in the sense of this small group of people here are the only mm. ones who it's going to be well for. Wow, that changes. Yeah, changes isn't that interesting? The view of it a little bit. Yeah, pretty fascinating stuff. Wow. Anyway, so... Yeah. We're getting into revelations yeah. today, <laughs> and hopefully we don't go crazy um, yeah. as we do and uh, seek to offer a faithful interpretation of this book, as many Christians throughout history have. So we are looking at the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum that will be used in LDS meeting houses around the world from December 4th to the 10th. And we're going to be looking at Revelation 1 to 5, chapter 1 to chapter 5. And uh, as is our normal pattern, we'll just kind of walk through this and um, make some comments as we go along. I don't know. We haven't even talked about what we're going to do here, section by section or sure. uh, or what. But, yeah, we'll, 
we'll work through it. Now we will have to cover some stuff that they don't cover at all because they skip chapter four yep. entirely and all the material that we looked over. So, um, man, what, what a fundamental chapter to the whole book of revelation and to be that for that to be the one that you skip is in, incredible. So anyway, we'll cover that. And, uh, yeah, so let's, let's jump in. The title of this entire lesson is glory and power be unto dot 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 the lamb forever and uh i just wrote out to the side only to the lamb or the lamb plus others who will receive glory and power yeah and honor as well or the lamb at this point of his exaltation right this point in his progression receives Glory and power forever, I guess. Yep, yep. Yeah, did did he receive glory and power and honor earlier? Sure. Or, you know, was that just a result of his progression? You know, think. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, I, I do think the instruction to the teacher is just particularly interesting this week. I mean, it's similar to what we've seen, but it's just so straightforward that uh, I just had to notate it. But they tell the teachers, receiving spiritual impressions helps you recognize that the Holy Ghost wants to teach you. Recording and following those impressions demonstrates that you value them and desire to receive more. Um, again, everything is just this uh, subjective show that you want to receive impressions, show the spirit that you value the impressions. And I'm just sitting here from an evangelical way of thinking, uh, the Holy Spirit is teaching through the objective words of Scripture. And so if you want to know what the Holy Spirit is teaching, then seek to understand the meaning of the text right. and adhere your life to it. Um, don't lean into the subjective, lean into the objective, meaning the Holy Spirit has taught, he has communicated, and that's not to say that he doesn't continue to open our eyes to understand the scriptures in some sense, and uh, really to treasure them, I would say, more than anything is the the Holy Spirit's role in our understanding. Um, I think even an unbeliever can exegete a text, but whether or not he's going to love that text and obey that text from the heart, that's a, that's a matter of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you, you've, you're the one who pointed out at some point this year the Jonathan Edwards distinction between light and heat. Yeah, I know B.B. Um, Warfield was big on the Holy Spirit increasing our understanding of the text, but it's never apart from the text. So beware of any movement or method that's going to split word and spirit. Yep. Um, yep. Christianity, it's word and spirit, so inseparably right. connected. And in the creed, for example, the Holy Spirit spake by the prophets. And that's going to be key in here because John will specifically use the wording, saw in the spirit, things like that. Yep. I, one thing that came to my mind here as well, is, especially given last time, this is the happiness letter model, right? Where God is testing you, so he'll reveal something to you. And then if you demonstrate you treasure it or will live it, even if it's Joseph Smith pressuring a 19-year-old girl against her will to marry him secretly, um, then you'll get receive more secret knowledge, right? And notice no limiting principle is ever articulated. Now, to the degree that which one is that I'm aware of, it will be that follow the brethren or follow the prophet or something like that, that it'll never um, make you leave him yeah 
you know, but um, still um, with the word game capability of LES culture, there's a lot of people that might even, <laughs> you know, have some conspiracy about the church that mm. stay in and stay faithful. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, we get into the invite sharing section and they write this as you begin a discussion it may be helpful to invite class members to share some of the messages they found in the book of revelation during their personal or family study. For example, what did they learn about heavenly father's plan to save his children? What did they learn about the savior and his role in this plan? Encourage class members to keep looking for important messages about Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation as they continue reading Revelation at home. Give them an opportunity during future lessons to to share what they found, find. Now, just a note in what we would say the book of Revelation communicates actually quite clearly is uh, uh, as credo Christians, of course, we're going to have a Trinitarian understanding of the plan of redemption or the plan of salvation, meaning this wasn't the Heavenly Father's plan and just the Heavenly Father's plan, and Jesus had a role within the plan as as if, you know, hey, how do you want to participate in Heavenly Father's plan? This is a Trinitarian salvation, meaning that this is a salvation plan from the beginning of all time by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to accomplish uh, the salvation or the redemption of a broken um, and rebellious creation. So this is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together um, in the planning and in the in the execution of this salvation. And you actually see that come through quite clearly in the in the Book of Revelation. We'll see in Revelation five here in just a minute. Jesus is depicted as the only one who can open the scroll. And if you read on in Revelation six and seven, you come to find that that scroll represents um, the the execution of salvation. It represents the broken creation being able to be saved. And Jesus is the one who is able to open the scroll, meaning that he is the one who is able to secure the salvation that has been planned by this Trinitarian God from before all time. Um, And he's the only one who is able to. So you just see... Uh, really even the Trinitarian work of salvation on behalf of the people who don't deserve it, so abundantly present within the book of Revelation. Okay, now let's move on to chapter one here. Uh, I just figured we'd cover that before we got into it. Chapter one, and uh, they do have only three sections in the Come, Follow Me curriculum this time around. There is a section on Revelation 1. There's a section on Revelation 2 and 3 those being the whole chapter, and then there's a section on Revelation 5. So again, as we said, they skip four, and we will cover that, uh, Lord willing. So let's look at what they have to say on Revelation chapter 1. The subtitle that they give us here is, Jesus Christ is the living Son of the living God. And they go on and say, the imagery and symbolism in Revelation 1 vividly testify that Jesus Christ lives and that he guides his church. Perhaps class members could write on the board several phrases from Revelation 1 that include imagery or symbolism and share what each phrase teaches them about Jesus Christ. For example, what do they learn from these symbols about about how Christ leads his church today? How does John's description of the Savior compare to the one in Doctrine and Covenants 1.10? Verses 1 to 4. Um, let me just go and read a little bit from the beginning of Revelation in Revelation chapter 1. And then, um, I don't know if you want to jump in and just make some comments on this section. Yeah. Not the, as much here as, as future 
sections. But, For sure. Just uh, uh, quickly, um, of course, the living son of the living God. We know how all year they've interpreted that, whether that's Holland or it's always linked to a denial of the virgin conception of Christ, right? The transcendence of God. They mean this literally. And, of course, uh, Joseph Smith, as we pointed out as well in a sermon, will latch on to unto God and his father, which ironically he corrected in the JST, but, of course, for, gets his correction when it suits him. In his last sermon in the Grove, he uses this to talk about the father of the father. And, uh, once again, was there ever a father without a son kind of logic, right? Yeah. And... Um, so this is key. Also, just in the seminary manual, um, they talk about the simple truths that you can find in Revelation, as difficult as the book is. And of course, one of these is the millennium, <clears throat> the future millennium, right? And there's one thing that I thought might be worth just saying, though I won't go into much detail. The Book of Mormon uh, claims a connection to Revelation in the sense that Nephi has kind of a vision of the future, but then is told that one in the future. Of course, this is Joseph Smith writing it, right? And then saying this ancient prophet he's made up mm-hmm. is foreseeing in the future from his vantage point, John will write. So don't write about here because John will write about this. And this is used in a lot of the, the stuff I was just talking about in terms of LDS prophecy stuff, literature, trying to connect the dots between Revelation, the newspaper, and the Book of Mormon. Um, uh, something um, here is notice how they say in their manual, this is, we've seen this all year long. Read the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 1, 4 through 8 and look for what John wanted these saints to know and feel about Jesus Christ. Notice, you read the Joseph Smith translation to find what John wanted them to know. Um, then another thing too, even in their attempts to help, one valuable way, they say, to understand symbols in the scriptures is to use other scriptures. But this, this then becomes an issue of canon, right? Because if you include books like the Book of Mormon, the DNC, all that, then that's going to shift the pool of data by which we do try to hone in John's original meaning, right? So this is really important. And and, and think about, too, just even in the manuals. So remember on the um, atonement chapter in the Gospel Principles Manual, they use a parable, not from the scriptures, but that Boyd K. Packer had written, so once again, does that is that incorporated into how we understand the symbols of Revelation? You can see that you need to define what scripture is. It's a canon argument. And we see often they don't exegete, they they do story time, right? Here's a story in, in which you can find a principle. So um they have um a, a quote, um well so in their manual, just two more quick things that I think is interesting. Once again, the lack of clarity is telling. Um, Revelation 1.8, they say, what do we learn from Jesus Christ's title, Almighty? And then down in the paragraph, they say one theme of the book of Revelation is that even though God's people in all ages faces face persecution and trouble, God does indeed govern all things. And this, is Jesus a God or not? We're going to get to this more in Revelation 5, but they're just deliberately not clear and you can see how the word games then become operative right along the distinctive lines between Christianity and Mormonism. Yeah, and it's just like, what does that even, what does that even mean? You know, be, right. be, because of their views of agency, how can God govern 
Um, no, in yeah. any in any absolute right. sense, anyways. I mean, in any uh, there there has to be zero um, real power or ability for the hmm. Lord to execute what He wants to execute. If we are truly free agents when it comes to the uh, the entire scope of time in history, right? Molinism is too deterministic for this system, so it has to be the way a you know you know a bureaucrat in some government agency predicts based on past stats or yep. um i mean really the 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 problem of induction of hume i mean is true of the gods mm-hmm. like they can't know the future they can just know better than we do because they have more knowledge predict in based on patterns and all that like a scientist yeah. or you know a statistician or a programmer um they can say well if i put in these things these results are likely to happen yeah um you can't have a God that determines all things. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're going to have to put that, we're just going to have to put that to test in, in terms of uh, their way of referring to God and, you know, uh, even as they say govern, of course, it's going to be a human comparison where they're trying to articulate that he is more of a facil- facilitator of things and has mm-hmm. this sort of knowledge. We're going we're gonna to see, is that the God that is presented in the first five chapters of Revelation? Totally. Um, you know, and and of course, we would say the answer is no. That right, the God of Revelation is being presented as a sovereign, absolute God mm-hmm. who determines all things um, as accords to time and history. Right, right, and it's it's just it turns into word games to try to get around that. Mm-hmm. Um, that he he in in creating determines the beginning and the end. Um, and it, listen to this. This is Bruce R. McConkie. Here's another example of here's what it should mean, but you can see how he'll turn it. So this is in the seminary manual. What does it mean that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega? They cite Bruce R. McConkie. Um, These words, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, are used figuratively to teach the timelessness and eternal nature of our Lord's existence. That That is, that from eternity to eternity, he is the same and his years never fail. Now, that's not true, though. If Jesus, if if as man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. And Jesus just attained the celestial exaltation that if uh, obedient, um, we have the potential to become. How is that true? Well, because Jesus isn't created. Mm-hmm. So in the sense where that's true, in the Mormon system, that's true of everybody. Yeah. So, so yeah, Jesus There's is... There's nothing in, unique being said about Jesus here. No. In a fundamental sense. How could it? Maybe it's a celebration of his coming of age sort of a thing. But, <laughs> right. Yeah. That he's now achieved a status in which he can, he has so much understanding. He's like the ultimate Einstein, right? Mm-hmm. That he can call himself metaphorically at the Alpha and Omega. But th- this is not said of anyone else, right? Yeah. This is said of God yep. and Jesus, Yep. And because Jesus is God in Revelation, but here it's timeless. Well, all intelligences, if you're a person listening right now in the Mormon scheme, your intelligence is timeless and eternal. And it, it, it honestly reminds me of the Kenneth Copeland, um, right, quote um, from one of his sermons, her, heretical sermons, Kenneth Copeland, absolute heretic, right? Where he says, every time I see God say in scripture that he is, I am, I smile back and say, I am too. And, and that is Mormonism, right? And, it, of course, he says God revealed it to him. I do think we may have a, an idea of what God did reveal this 
to him, if that is indeed true. But once again, it just shows um, how aware you need to be of this distinction to understand either Christianity or or um, Mormonism. And um, I'll just point the listener to, we've covered DNC 110 a few times. It was earlier in the year. In fact, I did a little bit of a deep dive into this in one of the, um, although I could have said way more, this is something to come back to. It's where Elijah and Elias are two different people. They come to the temple and restore all the temple stuff. Mm-hmm. Elijah became a key figure, as it was, and as you know from a ton of these American breakoff Jesus-flavored movements, they all emphasize Elijah and Elias and all this stuff. Well, this is one of those examples. And um, I would just say that imagery and symbolism Revelation 1 vividly testify that Jesus Christ lives and that he guides his church. I would say that is true. But that cannot be true of a system because Jesus is not guiding his church into polytheism and Gnosticism mm-hmm. and, and American pragmatism. So so anyway, there's, there's a jumble there, but um, this is the kind of thing that every one of these points could be its own episode. Yep, yep. Definitely. Jesus Christ is the living son of the living God. Um, and uh, that's what Skylar's filling in is what that means in an LDS system. Now, let me just read a little bit from Revelation 1. This is how the book starts out. And just listen at the face of it, what this is saying about Jesus. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by the blood, by his blood, and made us a kingdom Priests for priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then it goes on from there with lots of other great things. But I hope what you're hearing is just the high view of Jesus within this text. Um, You know, the purpose of Revelation really is to show the exalted status of Jesus, who is ruling and reigning over all the events and affairs of the world, who can guarantee that he will deliver his people from all evil that persists within the world, and that there will be one day an absolute end to all the wickedness within the world, because Jesus is on the throne. He is the Almighty, um, and and uh, and the God that is presented in the Scriptures is a God who has all power and all ability to be able to put evil to the end, um, where it will no longer persist or exist. And that's a distinctive of, of course, our faith. And it's one of the truths that is meant to be at the forefront of the book of Revelation. He's encouraging these churches. And uh, again, I just think that's a distinction that no faith that 
emphasizes free will and free agency above the sovereignty of God can ever make the claim of. Um, you know, if there's if agency is more important than God having control, then there there can be no guarantee that evil will one day be put to an end. Um, you don't have a Jesus who's powerful enough to actually stop the evil that is occurring. And, uh, and that's quite a hopeless situation if you think that one all the way through. Um, you know, that I've even challenged some Christians who don't come from a reformed way of thinking, of course, with, uh, with that thought, you know, what, what, what hope do you have that evil's ever going to be put to an end? Um, you know, if we have free will and free will is something that is essential to a proper understanding of the love of God, then, uh, you know, what do you do when you're in heaven? Do you still have free will there? Well, if you still have free will, will when you're in heaven, what's going to keep another fall from occurring? If humanity can rebel against God, you know, once again, and and if free will is essential to the love of God, then you can't have a heaven without free will because you would then have a God who doesn't love His creation enough to give them absolute, unhindered free will. Um, and so you've got uh, really an, all, all of eternity where you're just waiting for another fall to occur. Right, uh, you know, yeah. unless we think ourselves better than Adam and Eve, um, in, in which we are committing an arrogance mm-hmm. that is the root of a sin that will lead to another fall. Yeah. Right. So, anyway, th- these are just kind of things that it's important to think through the implications of this. W- what we're talking about is an actual sovereign God who has the power to stop all evil and put an absolute into it. He, he is victorious. Mm-hmm. Indeed, I, I take it a step further. Gods can fall. Yeah. In Mormonism, like that, that is explicitly in the Book of Mormon twice, and uh, you know people will try to limit it contextually, but the fact of the matter is it has been interpreted, um, even by teachers like Cleon Scouset, for example. To, to in fact, he he vaunts it as uh, a part of Mormon exceptionalism. Yeah, that we uniquely, he's speaking, we uniquely believe even the gods can fall. By their choice. And that's why, and I should have said this maybe a little more clearly, when I say David Hume's problem of induction, what I'm saying is you never can know for sure, we humans, that the data you're looking at is like the data you can't see, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a good argument for the, the finitude of our knowledge. And if God is only an extension of that, right? Mm-hmm. Time is something he's subject to, not just us. He can't. No. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yep. Like he can't know. Yep. He can he can know better than we do, but he can't ultimately know. Yeah. So what what I want to cover just real quickly here is our view of Jesus and really what we think is the clear view of what uh, this revelation is intended to convey about who Jesus is. Um, of course, in the Jewish system, as we've talked about over and over again. John, who's receiving this revelation, is a good Jew. There is one God. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are things that you say about God that clearly identify that you are talking about him and mm-hmm. not something that's part of creation. And what you have happening throughout the book of Revelation is these designations being given to Jesus that put him uh, as equal with God and uh, as one with God. And so here's just a little bit from Tom Schreiner, his book, The Joy of Hearing, which is a theology of the book of Revelation. He says, 
One of the striking features of Revelation, one that actually suggests that the Apostle John is the author, assuming here that the gospel was written by the Apostle, is its extraordinarily high Christology. The first example is located in the grace which, which is a typical feature of the opening of New Testament letters, Revelation 1, 4-6. What stands out is that grace and peace come not only from the God of Exodus 3.14, see Revelation 1.4, but also from Christ Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5. Here, we limit ourselves by noting that he is designated, quote, the ruler of kings on earth, and that he has, quote, made a kingdom, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Two observations should be made. First, only God rules over kings. Such a thing is never said of human beings. The pastoral impact of these words is also significant since a suffering church, a church in which some believers were losing their lives, which is who Paul is writing or uh, who John is writing towards in the book of Revelation, or even Jesus is speaking to these churches. But these kind of churches would be tempted to doubt whether God rules. John teaches him that Christ rules over every king, and thus no earthly power has ultimate sovereignty. Friends, just go read the Psalms. Um, when you yeah. read the Psalms, it comes through so clearly in so many of the Psalms, especially in the first book of the Psalms, that God rules over kings. And so for John, of course, to be having his revelation that Jesus rules over kings is to say that he is Yahweh. Second, in the same way, only God has the right to constitute people as a kingdom and his priests only God has a right to constitute people as a kingdom and as his priests. Yahweh appointed Israel to be a kingdom of priests when he established the covenant with them at Sinai, Exodus 19.6 and Isaiah 61.6. Attributing such a function to Jesus Christ then is quite remarkable, showing that he has the same stature and identity as Yahweh. And then Schreiner just goes on and on for uh, far more... Uh, uh, far more than we have time to cover here, showing all the ways that Revelation is seeking to clearly indicate Jesus is God. He is the Almighty. Um, and that's what that is communicating about Jesus. It's not that he's ascended to some great level that we can ascend to one day as well. It's communicating that he is uniquely God, that he is not like the rest of creation. And that's why he can be trusted as humans who are subject to various kinds of suffering. This is a God who has control over all these kings who are persecuting. This is a God who, <clears throat> even Satan himself, as we see later in Revelation, is subject to. Satan can't act. He can't do anything apart from the um, the ordaining of God. Um, and so even his own actions, Satan's own actions, are subject to this God who is sovereign over him. And, uh, you know, we'll see when we get later into the book of Revelation that that doesn't implicate God in the action of Satan because John very intentionally uses passive verbs to indicate that God is not the first actor of this evil. This is something that Satan is doing, but he is still sovereign over it. Satan is not usurping the will and the plan of God, ultimately, even through his own activity. So we're talking about a God who has absolute sovereign control and Jesus Christ is that God, yeah. and that's what this book is so beautifully conveying. So right. uh, that goes so much deeper than just this little bit that you get in the LDS curriculum that says Jesus Christ is the living son of the living God. Can I say one more thing about the existence of evil really quick? Yes. Um, I'll make it quick because I know there's a lot to get to. Um, Christians out there should read um, Second Nephi 2. 
in the Book of Mormon. You've you've heard me say all <laughs> all year long that I don't think the Book of Mormon is a good place to start learning Mormon theology. Frankly, it's one of the last I'd recommend. If you if you're going to be an expert of Mormonism, you need to understand it. The stories shape the imaginations of LDS, so it's important to know from that angle. But theologically, I don't think it's ultimately determinative of very much. That being said, I do think this chapter is an exception, and in there. Evil, the purpose of evil is so that you know good. In other words, it's um, it, it's an insight into this distinction that we've been hammering all year long. They don't have a transcendent God even in this, in the sense that, you know, if you didn't know sickness, you wouldn't know um, health. If you didn't know this, you'd, it, it's a very much a yin and yang kind of worldview that's being described. And um, why this is key is what you just said. When we say... Uh, and I do think even in Genesis one, you see this theology in in in, chat, in verse twenty one, when it talks of the the sea monster, right? And of course, <clears throat> this kind of satanic figure that haunted the imaginations of of people in the ancient Near East, right? This uncontrollable thing. The difference, though, why it's key to see it um, is that in the myths of the ancient Near East uh, that John is clearly aware of, that are still alive enough for. To, to shape how he's doing this theology throughout. We see it in Revelation 12, which we'll get to and all that, is that the, the god or the chief of the gods becomes that through this battle with this satanic figure. Um, I'm using the word Satan a little anachronistically, but you hear me. This It's very much a yin and yang balance between light and darkness. It's a dualistic system in which God is merely a player and battle of which creates the order that we call good, right? That's not Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God creates it for a purpose. It's one of the, it's like a, his goldfish. Yeah. Serves his purpose. It's not through conflict, it's through speaking. And when you have that view, how do you not have a view of sovereignty? And read Genesis 50, right? What you, right, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm-hmm. And this is this shapes how we view it. We don't see it as having this pragmatic function of how we understand the opposite side of the yin-yang balance. We see evil as a perversion, a twisting of something good. It doesn't exist in itself. And that's key to see. So so anyway, I do think that um Second Nephi two would be a good source for Christians to, to read to see yeah. you know this the, the this distinction. Yep, absolutely. Okay, let's get into Revelation 2 and 3. And they don't give us a whole lot here. Now, if you're not familiar with Revelation 2 and 3, those are the letters to the seven churches. And so Jesus is addressing these seven different churches, one in Ephesus, one in Smyrna, one in Pergamum, one in Thyatira, one in Sardis, uh, one in Philadelphia, one in Laodicea. And he is uh, really seeking to encourage them, to keep them from apostasy, to rebuke them, where needed. And so he's giving these addresses to these very specific particular churches. Now, the Come Follow Me curriculum uh, covers these two chapters with a subtitle, Jesus Christ Knows Us Personally and Will Help Us Overcome Our Challenges. And they say reading these messages that the Lord gives to these various branches of the church, um, I would just point out, you know, this is a place we love to go in our Baptist distinctives about, you know, the the autonomous church. And uh, anyway, we, we don't have to get into that today, but <laughs> it's like, they just have no concept. They're trying to figure out how do we 
reconcile the fact that we believe that there was one church, and so they call them these different branches of the one church. Now, of course, we would recognize a universal church in one sense as well, but not one whole organization that is all held accountable to the same degree. We actually think that this is a helpful text to look at when we're thinking about the the way that Jesus addresses individual local congregations for the particular failings that they're having as a local congregation, and he threatens even to, in one case, take the lampstand away from a particular local congregation, indicating that uh, that there is some sort of level of accountability to a specific group of people that doesn't apply to the whole quote-unquote church, um, church universal. Um, so anyway, that's just a side note. I, I got I to gotta throw in a little Baptist theology every once in a while. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, you can comment all you want over there, Skylar, if you want to. But yeah, I'm, I'm good. I, got, I feel like I get a, get a few punches in after you and Jason Wallace's episode. That's, so that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I would just say we point to Acts 15. That's all. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apostolic age stuff. Yeah. Okay, here we go. I'm not against uh, churches getting together to think through theology. Don't get me wrong. Okay, um, and then we get into them just saying in these same chapters, the Lord made inspiring promises to those who overcome. You can invite class members to work in pairs, search Revelation 2 and 3 to find the Lord's promises. Perhaps you could also draw pictures to represent some of the promises, then share with the class what they find. How do these promises inspire us to continue striving to overcome our own trials and weaknesses? So honestly, I don't have a lot on this this one. Um, just Just seems to be... Most, I mean, mostly my, my question would be um, the the omniscience of Jesus, which you already brought up um, in the podcast, but is it really possible for Jesus to know us all personally if you're adhering to the beliefs of the LDS system and the LDS Jesus? Is that a Jesus who really can be truly omniscient? Mm-hmm. Um, I would point to the omniscience of Jesus as being another indicator of his deity, mm-hmm. of him being you know the same as uh, as God Yahweh, uh, the God of the Old Testament. I, I think that that is something that's going on there. But is that something you can actually consistently hold together in an LDS worldview? So I don't know if you want to put anything in on that one. Well, um, I have a little bit from the seminary manual to give a sense of how they act, try to exegete this. Um, I don't know if you want me to do it first or after, but. Should I just jump in yeah. on that? Okay, just because uh, they, I, I do want to give the manual credit for trying to go through these seven letters and give some commentary, but I think it's telling of how they do it. So the, they break the Revelation 2 to 3 into two days in the seminary manual, one called I Know They Works, and the second is To Him That Overcometh, which is one of their phrases that they're trying to fit exaltation becoming uh, God in um, into. And... Um, and I do think that's, you know, is probably here as well when it says inspiring promises to those who overcome. The read between the lines is only to those who overcome. Mm-hmm. And if you overcome, then you attain exalt, exaltation status. But they, they say this, because Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ know each of us, they can acknowledge our good works and warn us of needed changes. This is their theme on this day one. And um, they, they even have a section on helping students, right? Invite students to identify which areas of their lives they feel the Savior might be pleased with them. 
As part of this invitation, students could pray to ask Heavenly Father to help them understand what they are doing well. Uh, they can include parents in that process as well. And uh, they, they'll have questions like this. Why is uh, Jesus uh, uniquely suited to know what we are doing well and how we need to improve? I would love to hear the answers to that. Mm-hmm. Uniquely suited. Um, I, unless they mean something different by unique, I'm not sure what they could mean by that. What do you think the Savior wants you to know you are doing well? And what might the Savior encourage you to change in your life? So it's... Um, you're doing this well. It, it, what is it? Uh, it's like that advice of correction, right? You first start with the positive. Well, they, they go through these seven letters, and let me just give a couple highlights. Look for the good works. This is the manual. Look for the good works Jesus acknowledges in some of the churches and the correction he gives to each church. Now, the one emphasis, I can't let this go without it being said. The two, one to seven, the Nicolaitans, right? They say this, were a religious group who claimed they could commit sexual sin without punishment because the grace of God would save them. That's their interpretation mm. of the Nicolaitan heresy. Wow. Yeah. Um, and in, in, in three to per, uh, Pergamos, right, they say, note the definition of Nicolaitans above. Uh, to Philadelphia, they say, this message only acknowledges good works. Wow, they were doing really really good. They're super righteous. And then in seven, the message only corrects imperfect works. Note that to be lukewarm means to not be fully committed to the gospel. Um, that's how they're, they interpret lukewarm there. And then it says at the very bottom of the seven letters, it says, what good works did Jesus Christ acknowledge? How have you seen similar good works among members of the church in our day? No, no, there's no, what, what sins also do you see being committed by Mm -hmm. the members and leadership of the LDS church in our day? Can't have that. Underneath that, they have this, how can I invite God to share his approval and correction with me? And they have a quote by President Henry B. Eyring, the first presidency, uh, from a talk given, uh, or no, sorry, just an Ensign article in February, 2018, in which he says this. As you examine your life during the ordinance of the sacrament, I hope your thoughts center not only on things you have done wrong, but also on things you have done right. Moments when you have felt that Heavenly Father and Jesus and the Savior were pleased with you. You may even take a moment during the sacrament to ask God, singular, by the way, mm-hmm. not the gods, both, to help you see these things. If you do, I promise you will feel something. You will feel hope. Wow. So there, I'll just let that sit there. Yeah. They do go on and they do tie this. Um, be you know, don't be lukewarm. Be super committed, um, and in match the Savior's commitment to you. They say that. How? <laughs> what can you do so that your commitment to the Savior more closely matches His commitment to you? And if we overcome, then the Savior will give us the blessings of exaltation. See that? If we overcome, then. So by promise, what they mean is wage. If you do this, if you fulfill this, then the blessing is, it's a vending machine. You know, you put in the token, you do the right thing, you say the right thing, it, then you'll get that bag of chips. And unless you do that, you have no promise. That's what promise means in the Mormon system. Very different from a promise in spite of sin and rebellion that God on his own work 
will bring about the redemption yeah. promised. So let's see how that goes in the flow of Revelation, right? Yeah. So we have all these churches who have all sorts of sin struggles, all sorts of weaknesses. What is the solution? Is it to turn their eyes inward upon themselves and think about how good they actually are, how good they're doing? Uh, you know, wh- what areas do I need to improve on? No, it's to get your eyes off of yourself and look to the throne. And that's exactly where the book goes. So chapter four, and I'm going to read all of chapter four. They skip yes. it. I just think it's worthwhile for us to read the whole thing um, because this really is the foundation of all of the book of Revelation uh, is chapter four and chapter five. After this... John writes, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there, by the way, um, this is all apocalyptic imagery, uh, beautiful imagery, not necessarily meant to be interpreted literally as if he's actually seeing these things, but all of these are symbols that convey truths that we need to understand. And one of those truths is that the only person who sits down in heaven is God. Um, he is the one who is seated on on the throne, and that's a consistent thing that you see throughout the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 6 as well. And so this is conveying the one who has authority. Even in, uh, in Jewish synagogues, the teacher sat down who is teaching and had the authority in that moment as he taught the word and everyone else stood up. So you see that reflected in, in that. Um, Verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it were, a sea of glass like crystals. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, and the second living creature, like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, uh, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. There's so much wow. beauty, so much rich, richness in this chapter. Um, just a few notes that that I'll hit on, and I don't know if you'll want to emphasize some of this, but <clears throat> the thoughts that I had when I was initially looking through this um, earlier today is chapter four, one of the things that you see that's so fascinating is how descriptive John is about everything that's around the throne. 
And this is something that you brought up as well as thought that I'd had when reading this, but there is an intentionality that we believe is going on here in the text that John is intentionally not describing what he sees when he looks at God. And the reason is because every Jew in their right mind knew that no one sees God. No one looks upon God. Uh, God is invisible. God is transcendent. God is not like the creation. He's not like someone that you can just waltz up to who's there in a body that you can look at. And so there's an intentionality here in the text, if you look at it, where he really doesn't describe anything about God. He, he says he looks, and then he immediately does what? He starts going into great detail about everything around the throne, because he dare not look into the quote-unquote uh, anthropomorphic face <laughs> of this God, um, the God that no one can look at, no one can see. Um, it's enough to behold the glory of everything that is surrounding him and to stand in awe of who he is, that all these things would be surrounding him. And this is something that is uh, presented to us as a terrifying experience. As John approaches the throne of this God, there's peals of thunder, there's flashes of lightning, there's rumblings going on. This is the same sort of stuff that ought to remind you of Mount Sinai when God's people approached him. And it's just a terrifying experience to uh, fall into the hands of a holy God. You think of the book of Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. So this isn't something that's this really happy, exciting uh, moment. There is legitimate fear that is being struck into the heart of John. Why? Because he is a creature, just like these other creatures that are surrounding the throne, and they're standing in the presence of the what? Worthy are you, verse 11, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for why? You created all things. We've been talking about this all year, friends. Notice in the Bible how important it is to maintain the creator-creation distinction. The whole point in how this is being depicted for us is for us to realize our creatureliness. Um, we, we relate more to the characters that are around the throne being described as these four creatures um, than we do with, of course, the one who's on the throne. He's the one who made it all not the one who's part of what's been made. And that's fundamentally part of what identifies him as God and us as substantially different than him. We're what he made. We're not uh, likened unto him when it comes to um, any anything related to that. Um, and so, yeah, and then just notice the holiness of this God is the main emphasis, right? The, the three uses of that word three times in a row. I just think of R.C. Sproul every time I read holy, 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 you know, him uh, just emphasizing this is the only place in all of the scriptures where an attribute of God is re repeated in the superlative degree, you know, you just think of his growly R.C. Sproul-like voice. Mm -hmm. um, if you haven't, go, I know we've recommended this before, go listen to The Holiness of God or read that book by R.C. Sproul. It's wonderful, and he dives into the significance of a lot of this imagery. But this God is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who is, the one uh, who was, and the one who is to come. And he is presented as a glorious God who's worthy of our worship. You want to add anything else on chapter four before I skip us on to five? Just to remind, uh, I'm sure so many of the Christians out here have had conversations with LDS where they immediately go, oh, well, what has happened to you? And basically just are completely opposed, if not mocking, of the idea 
uh, contained in the chapter they skip here. Yeah. Which is every time we get a glimpse into heaven, what do, what do we see? The worship, the, you know, full-hearted, full-person worship of the triune God. Yep. And, um, yeah, unless God changes their heart, they'll, they, of course, wouldn't like that. They're going to instead imagine themselves doing everything. Mm. Yeah. And then we get into chapter 5, which is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the longer, maybe the longest chapter in the book of Revelation. And it is the chapter that is covering the Lamb, which is, of course, Jesus himself. And so they do cover this chapter in the Come, Follow Me curriculum. And they say only Jesus Christ could make Heavenly Father's plan possible. There you got the word possible there, of course. And I just want you to see by the end of this chapter that Jesus is not making things possible. He is making things done. <laughs> you know, yeah, he, right. he, he's getting it done. He's the one who, he's the only one who can get it done. And that's really the whole point. Right. Um, so and, they, what, and what determines the degree of possibility? Yep. It would have to be something apart from God yep, that yep. he's subject to. Yep. So they say maybe do an object lesson in the class by putting some treat in a locked container and bringing the container to class. And before the class starts, you secretly give one person the key to the lock and you describe to the class what's in the container and you allow several class members to try opening the box. But uh, only that one person has the key and uh, eventually they're going to compare this object lesson to Revelation chapter 5 and they're going to ask questions like these. How is the salvation of Heavenly Father's children like the locked container or the sealed book? Why was Jesus Christ the only one who could open the seals? That's, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Because he's the class member that was secretly given the key beforehand? Yep, yep. That's, that's right. Right, Philippians 2, Colossians 1. All year long, think of how we speak of Jesus Christ. This is supposedly the one true church of Jesus. This is how they speak of why he is the only person that can make it possible. Because the Father picked Picked the class, one member of the class, and secretly gave them the key. And then, oh, see, he's the only one that can open it. Yep, yep. And they actually give a Jeffrey R. Holland quote to help the class in this. And this is what Holland says. He says, Christ volunteered to honor the moral agency of all humankind, even as he atoned for their sins. In the process, he would return to the Father all glory for such redemptive love. The infinite atonement of Christ was possible because, one, he was the only sinless man ever to live on this earth and therefore was not subject to the spiritual death resulting from sin. Two, he was the only begotten of the Father and therefore possessed the attributes of, God, of godhood and gave him, uh, that gave him power over physical death. And three, he was apparently the only one sufficiently humble and willing in the premortal council to be foreordained to that service. Oh boy! <laughs> well, I—I I mean, there's so much to say about that that I, I feel like if you've been listening to us all year, you'll just hear like you could unpack every single one of these words. Um. So right. let's let's work through this chapter okay. five. Okay, so we we just have done chapter four where John is in this vision caught up in seeing this holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. He is struck with fear, with um, awe, this God. 
And he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, just a few notes here quickly. You've got this scene of, of course, all these um, glorious angelic beings uh, surrounding the throne, worshiping God day and night without ceasing, and then the drama shifts to focus on the scroll that John sees in the anthropomorphic right hand of God. Um, and this is a scroll that's wrapped up with writing on the front and on the back and is sealed with seven seals. Now, of course, seals, just a drop of wax, is placed on the rolled-up edge of the parchment that held it closed, and the wax was often pressed with a stamp that was identifying the one who was uh, sending the letters. It's a distinctive mark that represented the individual who owned it. Now, we need to understand the significance of the scroll and the seals. As you read on, as I mentioned earlier, in the book of Revelation, what you come to find is that this scroll represents God's sovereign rule over all time and history. So on the scroll is written the redemptive plans and purposes of God. And the opening of the scroll will guarantee that all of God's good purposes for the universe will come to pass. So this is really referencing the need for someone who is sovereign and and uh, and has really the right within himself to ensure that everything good will come to pass for this universe rather than bad, which is what it, it seems to be deserving because of the fall. And so what we're learning from this imagery is that the that God possesses absolute sovereign control over all time and history, that he literally holds all time and history in the palm of his hand and the seven seals show God's sovereign ownership over the course of everything so all past present events all future events all of those belong to him this God is sovereign this God is ruling supreme this God is a God who rules over yesterday he rules in this moment he rules forever and um, he rules really in a multiplicity of ways but one way that we have seen of course already in the book of revelation is as the creator he rules over creation. He is sovereign over his creation. Um, he is the one who created all things with the beauty and complexity that they have, and he is the one who has all the rights over creation. You know, one of the things that just may be helpful to think through as a quick analogy for this is the one who makes something has the rights over it, and I learn this in the Scoggin House every day because my kids are really into Legos, and my daughter creates these amazing Lego creations and they're wonderful, beautiful. She puts all this time and effort into making this creation. And then her little four-year-old brother comes in and smashes the thing to smithereens. And she knows that is that is unjust. <laughs> she, she has the rights. Now, if she wants to smash the thing to pieces, 
She doesn't blink an eye about it. She has the rights over the creation because she's the one who made it. And so it is with his God. He rules over all creation. He doesn't just, though, rule over creation um, in this generic sense. He also rules over all the world in an administrative sense. Um, you know, as you study the scriptures, you come to learn things like Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, his kingdom, his kingdom rules over all. Anywhere that you see kingdom sort of language, what you ought to be thinking of is the administration of things, the one who has the rights to make decisions and to dictate whether or not things are going to go this way or that. And what we see presented of the God of the Bible is that he administrates this world exactly as he wants it to be administrated. That's what it means for him to be sovereign, which means through every age and in, in, in every moment of every day, really, God is administrating exactly what he wants to be administrated, administrated in this world. He rules over every king of this earth. He rules over all the rulers. We've seen that happening or, or being taught even all the way as early as what was said of Jesus in chapter one of Revelation that we just went through. And then the final piece that's important to remember is that God is sovereign over salvation. And the Bible is clear over this. Uh, you know, we've been highlighting this throughout the year. What we're talking about here is a God who definitively saves his people and who even determines whom he will save and whom he will not save. Um, he, he gets to choose um, his way of salvation. And we have no part in that except to trust him when he calls us and to believe on his name and to be saved. But he is in control of everything within, with all, all of it. Now, how is man presented in this? Man is the silent sinner. Um, all creation. Now here's the amazing thing is it's not just, uh, John who has to be silent. It's every creature. You know, um, it's even those who you might say were sinless, the the angels and and those they none of them could be the the savior. Um, it took this special one um, who has come and has come to do this work of salvation, and that one is the Lamb of God. But I just think it's important to hit hit us in a humble way. We we cannot be the savior, and that's the whole point of this passage. It's to shut our mouths and to realize the only thing we can do and ought to be doing is to weep, knowing that we have no hope of saving ourselves. And that's exactly where John finds himself weeping. And then, of course, we have the beautiful Lamb of God presented. One of the elders looks at John, weep no more. He says, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is just an amazing presentation of the person and work of Jesus. That man was not left in his weeping silence, but God himself sent a rescuer, a savior. And so this is the image of of, uh, of Jesus being the one who is ensuring that all salvation history is going to turn out for good. He's the one who ends all weeping and all this beautiful imagery of him being the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? First and foremost, the lion of the tribe of Judah was a common phrase that referred to the Messiah, which Israel was anticipating. It comes from the prophetic blessing that Jacob gives to his sons 
um, one of which was Judah, of course, and the giving of the blessing can be found in Genesis 49.9. It says this, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Okay, that is a wonderful image of this coming Messiah from the tribe of Judah. There's going to be a savior who's going to be like a lion. And of course, the lion is the fiercest of all creatures. My favorite, personally. You know, you ask around our dinner table what Brendan's favorite animal is. It's going to be a lion. I just like lions, but the lion is well-known and always has been known as the king of the jungle, right? Like the one who rules over um, all of the other uh, creatures that are around him. And so the prophecy, if you go back and look in Genesis 49, is eliciting this imagery of a lion who is rising victorious over its prey. It has just devoured its prey. And this lion is a mighty victor. And so Israel's looking for a king like that. Who's going to save us from this body of death? Who's going to rescue us from this hopeless situation? No one but Jesus. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who came and who has conquered. Um, I just am reminded of C.S. Lewis's beautiful quote in the Chronicles of Narnia. You remember this one? C.S. Lewis uh, puts this line in in the book when Susan is finding out for the first time about this savior king that's in the story. And Mr. Beaver, one of the characters, tells Susan this. Um, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall fear I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the way Jesus is being presented here as this mighty conquering lion. Then second, he's the root of David. The root of David is a reference to Isaiah eleven, one to ten. Uh, just listen. Which is not about Joseph Smith. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not about Joseph Smith. <laughs> so listen to this. This is Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. And really what this shows is Isaiah's prophesying about what's going to happen after the Messiah finishes his task. What What is what is the Messiah ushering in? You know, he's going to come and he's going to conquer, but then what, right? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Okay, so this Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to be the righteous judge. He's going to justly judge all wickedness that is within the world. It's the same sort of imagery that we see of Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 when he comes on a white horse yep. and he slays the wicked and puts an end to all wickedness. Why? So that he can restore perfect peace to the creation. That's going to be the result of his rule. So listen to what happens after Jesus comes and does what he's going to come and do. Verse 6 of Isaiah, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. 
And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hold of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you see what's going to happen as a result of this one's rule? Perfect peace. No more conflict. No more strife. No more danger. No more fear. No more people stepping out of line. No more people serving themselves over the good of others. We are talking about perfect peace peace. And this is a peace that only Jesus can bring. And it's a peace that he can only bring if he is actually sovereign and actually able. Uh, This isn't a peace that's possible if the God that we really worship is our own free agency that Jesus is not allowed to usurp. No, we submit to our King Jesus and he brings the kind of peace that our souls so desperately long for. So at this point, you just imagine a great Jewish man, a great Jewish Messiah, right? John is caught up in this glorious vision. He hasn't turned to look at this figure yet. He's just been told about him, that he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the uh, the the root of David. So you could think that he's probably, con- he's probably imagining he's going to turn around and see some real good-looking Jewish man standing there. But he turns around, and what does he see? A slaughtered lamb. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Plot twist, right? <laughs> yeah. He turns and he sees a slaughtered lamb. Now, what is that referring to? The slaughtered lamb is referring us back to the night of the Passover when God's people, of course, were enslaved in Egypt and Pharaoh refused to let them go. You remember the story in, in, in Exodus? So God judged Egypt for their sin. He sweeps through. He takes the firstborn of every Egyptian home. But the Israelites, you'll recall, were given a gracious escape from that judgment. They were sinners just like the Egyptians, but they were given a gracious escape. And that escape was by slaughtering a lamb that God told them to slaughter, taking its blood, spreading it over the doorpost. The sin had to be judged, and the lamb representatively took the judgment so that the sin could be dealt with. And, of course, we know that that wasn't actually satisfying the wrath of God. This was a symbol of a greater sacrifice that was needed, and that greater sacrifice is the one that John turns around and sees right there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right there. This is the hope of the world. And the amazing thing is that John doesn't turn around and just see the slaughtered lamb laying there dead on the ground. No, this is a slaughtered lamb who's standing. This is a lion who's conquered. This is the root of David who has come to make peace that none of us could ever make for ourselves. This is the Christ that we are called to worship and adore. And for time's sake, I'm not going to read through the rest of chapter 5, but that's exactly what everyone in all creation turns and does. They fall on their faces and they worship this Jesus because he is the only one who could save. And he did come and he did save. And so that's the call of this text, is to see Christ for who he truly is and to worship him as such for all eternity. Um, he's our God. He, he's the one whom our allegiance uh, goes to. He's the one whom our hearts adore. Um, he's the one whom we want to be caught up uh, just forever in the worship of his holy name. 
of all of who he is and of all of what he has done and accomplished for us. And if that's not your eternal hope, friend, then you are not worshiping the same God that is presented in the Bible as the one true God who created all things and who has sent his own son into the world to redeem us from our sins so that all things would be culminated and restored in Jesus for him, to him, through him, um, and that is to glorify him and worship him forever. And, uh, man, if that's not your vision in heaven, you got the wrong vision. Yes, it's certainly not the biblical one. Yeah. And I think also this, um, that's the gospel, the good news, right? How, how beautiful are the feet of him, right? Who <laughs> bringeth that message. It's the gospel is the preaching of news of the victory won by another. Yep. Right. So we live in light of that news, but it's not, that's why it's so key to see how these, this, the symbols in the right canon do connect biblically. Right. And you see how Isaiah 52 ties to what Paul says in Romans about this victory that John gets an even greater glimpse in at a time of persecution. Yep. And um, whereas in <laughs> the LDS coverage of this, the seminary manual, I'll, I'll go quick. The first line is, what do you think it means to worship Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ? Why do you think we worship them? Now, I think uh, some of the listeners will be clued in already to kind of an issue, right? Because if you ever bring up the first commandment um, or Isaiah 40 through 48, what is one of the stock responses we get? Is that we only do worship one for us or for this world or something like this. And either they will center it on all three's shared authority, but we see that the manual sometimes doesn't function that way. Sometimes it does. Sometimes as you focus in on Heavenly Father and you subordinate Jesus Christ and then subordinate the Holy Ghost almost in a ladder sequence, right? Three steps of a ladder. Um, but this manual um, is saying that they worship both. Yeah. And if they're two separate beings and persons, this is polytheism. Yep. They're worshiping two gods. John's worshiping the triune God. Yep. Okay. The Bible preaches the triune God. They are preaching at least two gods, if you don't include their wives. And if you include the Holy Ghost, three. Now, um, to show they continue this, um, and by the way, why is this an issue? This is one of those issues that shouldn't be an issue. You know, the first commandment should not be an mm-hmm. <laughs> issue. If you're claiming to be the restored church that represents the Bible as originally had, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, they'll say, one truth we learn is that as we recognize and feel gratitude for Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, we desire to worship and praise them, capital T, them. Showing, once again, they double down. Um, I could go on. Let me uh, just a couple more that I think are worth including. Who do we worship? Russell Nelson. They quote this Christ is risen talk we brought up quite a bit, where he says, the atoning sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ changed each of our lives forever. We love him and gratefully worship him and our heavenly father. That's two gods. That's polytheism. And yet, notice how many times in the manuals, right, they use God in the singular. 
Um, they even included Garrett Gong quote where he says, we worship God, the eternal father and his son, Jesus Christ, not the prophet Joseph, nor any mortal man or woman. Notice the fudge word mortal. Uh, Jesus Christ was not a mortal man then. So, I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Of course, uh, Gong rarely does. That being said, notice he didn't include the Holy Ghost. And if it's one Godhead that's united, as Holland says in his talk, in every way except in substance, mm-hmm. then they, <laughs> this, what, what is not including the Holy Ghost here actually communicating? Now, here's one that, that just got my hackles up, and I have to include this. They, they have a question, how can worship help me become like God? Tying this to the previous lesson of overcoming, right? They include Bruce R. McConkie, the promised Messiah. This is key. And I, I'm shocked they included a Bruce R. McConkie quote, as we're going to see in a second. This is what, he's, what the quote says. Come worship the Lord. How is it done? Perfect worship is emulation. We honor those whom we imitate. The most perfect way of worship is to be holy as Jehovah is holy. It is to be pure as Christ is pure. It is to do the things that enable us to become like the Father. See how worship becomes what they do. (laughs) Um, It seems like everything becomes what they do. Uh, The gospel, the law, it's all the same. It's just what you do. Okay, he goes on. How do we worship the Lord? We do it by going from grace to grace until we receive the fullness of the Father and are glorified in light and truth, as is our case with our pattern and prototype, prototype, the promised Messiah. Wow, that's, that's an LDS quote, if I ever saw one. Here's the, here's the interesting thing, though, and they don't even bring this up in the manual. There is a talk I'm going to link to. I wish we could go through the whole thing. Called Our Relationship with the Lord. It's a, it's a BYU devotional by Elder Bruce R. McConkie. March 2nd, 1982. And uh, this is the, the kind of description of the talk. True and saving worship is found only among those who know the truth about God and the Godhead and who understand the true relationship men should have with each member of that eternal presidency. Um, notice they say the first presidency is modeled on the Godhead. What, the problem with that is the first presidency at several points has had more than three, yeah. even as recently as David O. McKay. by the way. Uh, So there's people alive today who knew a first presidency that was more than three. Um, Now that number is dwindling, but still. He says in there, I shall express the view of the brethren, of the prophets and apostles of old, and of all those who understand the scriptures and are in tune with the Holy Spirit. Of course, distinguishing Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost. He says in here, um, there is no salvation in believing any false doctrine, particularly a false or unwise view about the Godhead or any of its members any of its members. Eternal life is reserved for those who know God and the one whom he sent to work out the infinite and eternal atonement. True and saving worship is found only, then it's that quote that I just said. He then says, it follows that the devil would rather spread false doctrine about God and the Godhead and induce false feelings with reference to any one of them than almost any other thing he could do. The creeds of Christendom illustrate perfectly illustrate perfectly what Lucifer wants so-called Christian people to believe about deity in order to be damned. Of course, that sounds really harrowing, uh, but by damned, he just means limited in your progression. So, um, And he, he then even, 
He says these creeds codify what Jeremiah calls the lies about God. I'm, I'm trying to up the stakes here. He really aims at us, but then he's going to define the Godhead in a way that I think even LDS people would find shocking. So bear with me here. These creeds codify what Jeremiah calls the lies about God. They say he is unknown, uncreated, incomprehensible. They say he is a spirit without body, parts, or passions. Um, a spirit, the way Jesus said in John 4, I might say. Um, they say he is everywhere and nowhere, in particular present, that he fills the immensity of space and yet dwells in the hearts of men, and that he is an immaterial, incorporeal nothingness. They say he is one God and three, and three gods and one who neither hears nor sees nor speaks. That's total parody of what we're saying. Some even say he is dead, which he might as well be if their descriptions identify his being. Okay. So these concepts summarize the chief and greatest heresy of Christendom. Okay, I could go on there, but let's get to his positive presentation about the doctrines of eternal life, right? That without which you'd be damned. He says, number one, the number one point after all of that, we worship the Father and him only and no one else. We do not worship the Son. Let me repeat, we do not worship the Son, mm -hmm. and we do not worship the Holy Ghost. Now, I'll put in the show notes quotes uh, where Brigham Young teaches that Joseph Smith was a god to him, and Peter was a god to Joseph Smith, and, you know, uh, there, there are times when they clearly, um, it's not just the speculation about Joseph Smith and the Holy Ghost that I'm talking about. I mean, they talk about a god is basically anyone higher up on the path that helps you progress, mm -hmm. right? Uh, of course, the father, and really the higher god, the father's father being an ultimate example. But notice that. They quote Bruce R. McConkie, <laughs> and he says, we don't worship Jesus. Now, he does later complicate it by saying, well, he's so identified with him that he can speak with that authority and whatever. But notice, even in the quote he just said, it makes you wonder which Lord he's actually talking about in the quote they included in the manual. So, um, they, they, but what he does, of course, and it, it almost reminds me, it, you know, you separate veneration from worship or whatever. I know perfectly well what the scriptures say about worshiping Christ and Jehovah, but they are speaking in an entirely different sense, right? So, worship in the true and saving sense is reserved for God the first, uh, the Father, the Creator. So, um, and I'll just remind people that even um, Gordon B. Hinckley, not that long ago, in my lifetime, said that when it comes to, quote, the traditional Christ of Christianity, there is some substance, um, he says, and there's some substance to the criticism that the LDS don't believe in him. And we would agree. Yeah, We want that not, uh, distinction acknowledged. And the question should be for the LDS, which is actually biblical? Mm. Which can hold together Genesis 1-1 to, you know, last verse of Revelation, what is it, 22-21? Yep. And what does all of that say about God and who God is? And the, the, if you let all of Scripture speak, there is no other true answer than the one in three God, the triune God, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's right. And that is so beautifully depicted, even in the book of Revelation. And if we could just leave you with a final word, Dear listener, I think it would be this. You have hope for eternity, not because you're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. 
and the response to the worthiness of Jesus ought to be exactly the response that you see depicted in Revelation 4 and 5. What happens in the worship of God the Father seated on the throne? Well, chapter 4, verse 11, worthy are you, God the Father, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then enters Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. He takes the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne, meaning he has equal authority. He's equal with the one on the throne. And what is the response of everyone? They turn their song, so to speak, and of course they're not really turning it because they're seeing it as one God in three persons. But now they're singing to the person of the lamb who was slain, and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priest our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Those are the same sorts of blessings that are given to God the Father there. You are worthy of these things, the Lamb you are. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Thanks for joining us. We will see you next week as we continue on in the book of Revelation. Have a good one.